everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Before we start, I have a quick word from this episode's sponsor. The University of Nevada, Las Vegas invites artists to apply for the Fall 2023 Masters of Fine Arts Program in Art. The three-year program with an emphasis on creative practice offers 24-hour access to private studios, graduate assistantship funding, and opportunities to engage with a dynamic roster of visiting artists, all within the unique context of Las Vegas. We welcome artists from diverse backgrounds who want to participate in the dialogues within contemporary art and culture and the creation of powerful sensory experiences and shared knowledge through art making and exhibition to apply by February 1st, 2023. More information about the program and how to apply at unlv.edu slash art. Hey everyone. It has been quite a while since I last released an episode. Sorry for the long pause. I just needed a brief break to get some mental rest. It has been a crazy year with lots of changes for me both personally and professionally. After this brief pause, I got back some energy and will be releasing a few more episodes periodically over the next few months. I will do my best to keep up the bi-weekly schedule but I hope you understand if the episodes deviate in schedule a bit here and there. Anyway, with that out of the way, I would like to introduce my guest for today, Teresa Flores, an interdisciplinary artist whose work examines identity and wellness and often takes place in the public sphere and incorporates civic engagement. Teresa studied at CSU Fresno and Fresno City College and holds an MFA in public practice from Otis College of Art and Design. Her work responds to the consumption and accessibility of food, culture, and art in suburban and urban spaces. I recorded this episode a while back, right before I took a break. Teresa was so kind as to still let me release our conversation. I smiled as I listened to our discussion meandering around pronunciation of names, creating fancy quesadillas, and doing yoga in unexpected places. As always, sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy this. Yes, it was a good Friday. I just got, I've got so much work. I'm probably going to just work through the weekend. Yeah. What are you working on? I have three projects that are kind of aligning in this way where they're going to start up at the same time. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm just coordinating like team meetings and getting the budgets all set up and calculating, you know, printing times for things and yeah. just being my own administrator, which, yeah. you know, artists are great at. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, some are right. Some also are really bad at logistics, I think. Yeah. Like there's artists that are so super well organized at everything. Like you walk into their studios and it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, you professional. Know? I'm not one of those people. <laughs> but you're organized at least sort of, right? Yeah. 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 No, I have, I have infrastructure and things like that. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, our country's infrastructure is falling apart. Yeah, I have this tiny little room that keeps me together. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it'd be good, you know, for the listeners out there. Uh, Teresa and I met this open call. Like, it is called To Be Named uh, Conference. I think it was hosted by the Smithsonian and a bunch of other different organizations. And we kind of got together and Teresa and I were kind of selected because of the way we talked about, I guess, our practice in relationship to naming. And I think we bonded over, you know, some of the similarities. And so, you know, I thought it'd be good to start off with introducing yourself via your name. And if you could talk a little bit about that relationship with just not only just the name, but also like the cultural implications in relation to the name and pronunciation and all of that. Yeah, there's a lot going on with my name. You know, it gets pronounced in English and it gets pronounced in Spanish. And to some people, they don't recognize it in one language or the other and so uh, i was born as teresa with my family calling me my name in spanish and then as i got older and i started to go to school my mom told me we're gonna start calling you teresa (laughs) and i was like why would you do that that's a whole other name and um she kind of explained to me that this was my name in english Mm-hmm. And this is what they were going to call me in English. And so I, I got used to it at home. You know, they practiced with me before I went to preschool and, and they went to school. And <laughs> that's nice that she <laughs> practiced with you. I responded properly to my name in English. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't like grow up speaking Spanish. They spoke Spanish in the home, but like my mom doesn't speak Spanish. And my dad, I think, was like learning it at the time. Uh huh. But they pronounced it, it with a Spanish way. Yeah. Like yeah, there's yeah. still like a lot of Spanish still happening in the house. Mm-hmm, yeah. Especially with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I went about my life, you know, in school and friends and stuff, and everybody's calling me Teresa. And then strangely enough, it was when I moved to LA that suddenly people were like, How do I pronounce your name? And I was like, What? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> like, you know, and they, I started getting like these weird variations. They're like, Teresa. <laughs> The people like asking, weird. were they Latin X or were they non-Latin X? It was both. Oh, it was both. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was both. And there's like, I don't know, they're trying to like read me, you know, uh-huh. in a yeah. way, like by yeah. based on my answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so right now, which one are you more comfortable with? I'm comfortable with both. But okay. like when I introduce myself, most of the time I say Teresa, uh-huh. unless I know that if I say it in English, the person's going to be like, what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought that was really, you know, I connected with that story also because, you know, I think about my name and for me it's also interesting because like I don't think I'm always pronouncing my name correctly, right? Because Chinese has all these different tonalities, right? And so, and then there's also, there's like Cantonese and then Mandarin and there are different pronunciations as well. And then the phonetics of those gets translated to English, which doesn't always match up properly, or at least, you know, you're not sure how to pronounce things if you're not Chinese with how the pinyin is written out, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you telling us at the beginning of our meeting with our Smithsonian friends about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that I think about a lot. And, you know, I think about, you know, language as, you know, culture, right? Or like translation as culture, right? And you can't really separate the two things. Yeah. And then you're living it in your body too. <laughs> 
and then being called it and introducing yourself and yeah, it's just part of you. Right. So, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm curious, could you talk a little bit about, you know, growing up in California, right? As you described in your background, you're multiple generations deep in Californian and Chicana identity. So, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, growing up in California. I know you moved around a lot as well. Yeah. Uh, so I was born in the Inland Empire. My parents were born in the Inland Empire. My grandparents were born in the Inland Empire. Some of my great grandparents were born in the Inland Empire. <laughs> I, it's a beautiful place. I, you know, I'm fondly, I'm fond of it. But yeah, like there's multiple generations deep going, especially on my mom's side, mm. like being in California in the Inland Empire. And eventually, if you trace back far enough, you can start to see um, where people are coming from, like Sonora or Durango mm. or Baja or Acapulco, mm-hmm. different parts. And then we moved up to Fresno when I was about two years old. And I grew up in Fresno. And then we would just kind of travel back and forth. Fresno was actually a central point because my dad has family up in San Jose, Northern California. And so we would. So do I. Oh, I like it up there. (laughs) Maybe they know each other. It's so boring. I hate it. I hate it. (laughs) When I was a kid, I was like, well, it's very different there now. Like, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The only issue I had with San Jose is sort of like, there's just so, 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 so much money there. And it's like, where's this money going? Culturally, it's so boring, right? Like, can you just put a little bit of money in just something interesting? I'm like, you know how much money there is there, right? It's the concentration of all the tech in the world, basically, right? And you go there, you're just like, this is what's going on here. Yes, (laughs) yes. Yes, I reconnected with some family recently and I went to the house of a cousin who's maybe like a few years younger than me and her house was incredible. Yeah. And the backyard was amazing. And I'm like, where did this come from? What how do you do this is Yeah. <laughs> this is very different than what I experienced in Southern California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was Fresno like? I've never been there, even though I lived in LA for two years. Like You'll pass through Fresno if you're on your way to Yosemite, but uh-huh. like there's not a lot of reason that people go to Fresno unless they like have family or friends yeah. there or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't really know anything different. And as far as I was concerned in my experience, it was very similar to like San Bernardino Riverside area uh-huh. too, you know, like yeah. just because those were the two regions that I spent time in. Yeah. So in my experience, I was like at a small Catholic school and the city grew a lot as I was growing up. Like I remember driving around and there were orchards or there were mm-hmm. like old barns that mm-hmm. were falling over and abandoned. Mm-hmm. And over time, those orchards and the barns just kind of got ripped up and paved over into parking lots and turned mm-hmm. into like AutoZone or Walmart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the city just kind of like sprawled over time. Yeah. Well, that whole area in L.A. just continual sprawl, right? Yeah. There's uh, I think they're working on the infill. That's like constantly a debate about Fresno and like trying to just contain the sprawl. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think the other issue I thought was just like there's lots of like regulations for how tall a building can get. Right. So you can't really go up. So you have to go out. So. Yeah, that's true, especially with housing, too, as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you you went to a Catholic school in Fresno. What was that like? Uh, well, 
<laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's people who had a better experience than I did. <laughs> I don't know. They haven't been really good in the news lately for the past decade or so, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had nuns from Spain. There, yeah. So uh-huh. it was very colonial. That was the thing is like, it was nuns from Spain and then like Chicano, Mexican American kids and Filipinos and uh-huh. indigenous and then like your mix of like black, brown and Asian. Yeah. But we were the colonized. So there's like many generations deep of Spanish nuns then? Um, I mean, these nuns had grown up in like Madrid and Barcelona and okay. they would tell us about it. And oh, tell okay. Us the stories. And they could have very easily taught us Spanish. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I'm confused. They did not teach you Spanish? No, no. This uh, is part of the colonization. They uh, want us to speak English. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yes. Like we were actively in it. Did you sense a sort of like superiority from them as Spanish versus like say black, brown, Mexican, Chicana? It was weird because when I think back on it, like in fourth grade, you have to make a mission, a California mission. Right. Okay. Like that's, that's like a requirement in the state of California is that every fourth grader builds a model of a California mission and they learn California history, quote unquote, uh-huh. and they take it to school. Okay. And so, you know, you learn about the mission system in California, which is basically like the enslavement and genocide of native Californians. Mm-hmm. And so there we are in this like terracotta roof school with <laughs> okay. like the Adobe plastering yeah. on the yeah, outside yeah. of it, Yeah, yeah. you know, this mission looking school and, you know, bringing in these like missions and stuff. And so the way that they would talk about it, they would be like the Indians, this, the Indians that, uh-huh. but nobody actually said like, you guys are the Indians. <laughs> like we, we didn't, yeah, it yeah. didn't really register, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's another form of the colonization. It's just like that kind of like distancing. Yeah. Yeah. So while you were in school, is that where your spark for art kind of came to be? Ooh. Mm, hmm. My spark for art. Sometimes that's a hard mm. question. Cause I always say mine came when I was like 24, 25, 26. Like I always had like a drive. That's the thing. It's like, like I had the, the like creative drive to yeah, make yeah. things. Yeah. I was always like making things. And Taking things apart. Creative. Yeah, but like the like the spark to be like, yeah, I want to like do this for my life. Yeah, that probably didn't come till I was probably in my 20s. Yeah, yeah. So after Catholic school, did you keep drawing? Were you drawing, painting? or So I guess take me through like how you kind of went down the path of deciding to pursue art. Hmm. Yeah. I always had to kind of be doing something that was creative to me, but I didn't really consider like, oh, let me like keep a sketchbook and stuff. So I would draw sometimes. I remember in high school, I wrote like a couple poems. Mm-hmm. My grandma taught me to cook and that became like this creative outlet as well. But then after high school, I just needed a break from school. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> It was just too much. And so I started working full time at Macy's. Okay. And what happened with that was they wanted me to be a salesperson, but I really wanted to be a stock person. And <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> You're like, like you want to just put things on the shelf, you mean? And, and yeah. Okay. And so, so what I wound up doing was I was the merchandiser for the lingerie department. And so I would show up at Macy's at like six 30 in the morning uh-huh. and there would be racks and racks of like 
this beautiful, colorful lingerie. Mm -hmm. And so I would get to put it away or arrange it in the store and just make the department like pretty. Yeah. And so that was, that was kind of like my creative outlet for several years. You're learning installation skills there. (laughs) Yeah. There was a lot that I learned there. (laughs) I still use some of the things that I learned, like when I'm arranging things. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, eventually I know you ended up getting a BA in art for drawing and painting at Fresno, Cal State. And, you know, how did you end up deciding to go back to pursue your bachelor's and specifically in art? Okay. That's a good question. What happened was... I had been working full time there at Macy's for a few years and it was Valentine's Day one day and I ate a bunch of chocolate at six in the morning because my boyfriend had gifted me this box and I wound up in the emergency room because I had a cyst for endometriosis Okay. and it was incredibly painful and I wound up having to take a leave of absence from work and having surgery and it really just made me pause and reflect on my life. Okay. And like, what am I doing and what's going on? And I remember my team, the merchandising team, they were really concerned about me and they really saw how I kind of like had shifted and they gave me some money to take an art class. Really? And Yeah. They were like, they knew that I wanted to do art and yeah, take yeah. it, but I didn't really understand what to do. Yeah. But from there, <laughs> like everybody just kind of was like encouraging me like, yeah, go back to school, you know, do, you know, do it. And yeah. so I, I just, I kind of started studying art and then I started learning about capitalism <laughs> and how I was working <laughs> at Macy's in this capitalistic corporation. The horror. It was like, <laughs> the horror, right? Yeah. <laughs> Shocked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was radicalized. <laughs> so then so then uh you were radicalized and you started drawing, painting? I was taking classes at Fresno City College and I really loved figure drawing. I loved painting and eventually I made my way to transferring to Fresno State where Professor Dan Daner had suggested, hey, maybe try, you know, just to his class in general, like try something new, try a new medium, try yeah. video art. Cause he was teaching yeah. a video art class yeah. and I loved it. That's what I do to my students. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of our job as teachers, you know, it's like, hey, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And they're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good teacher move. You know? I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So I started doing video art. I entered one of my films in the local film festival. Okay. And that was amazing. Like I got to play on this big screen. Mm -hmm. I got to be on this panel. I met like other people who were in like video and film around Fresno. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of stuck with that. And then as time went on, I started learning about the feminist art program at Fresno State that Judy Chicago founded. Okay. And that was super inspiring because I had no idea that that kind of history had taken place like on the same campus while yeah, I was yeah. learning art. Was she, but she had left though, right? Oh yeah, she was long gone. Okay. She was only there for like two years. Oh, uh, okay. And then she got famous and... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What happened was she had come to Fresno in, I believe, like about 1969, and she started the feminist art program there. And um, Suzanne Lacey was like one of her assistant teachers. And then she had just a bunch of like local Fresno State students in there. Shout out to Nancy Udelman. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of 
big names that coming out from Fresno. Big <laughs> names, big names that were there. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, they had a studio out near the Fresno fairgrounds. It's like kind of an indoor swap meet or market now. Yeah. And there's no plaque or marker marking it, but it was, a, it's a very historic site. Yeah. And so they had that spot that they worked out of and that's where the feminist art program studio happened. And I guess Judy started connecting or somehow with the minimalist artists out in LA, you know, a bunch of dude bros. And they're mm-hmm. like, what's going on in Fresno? What are you doing over here? <laughs> yeah, they all, they all talk like that. <laughs> exactly like that. <laughs> and so somehow they, you know, somehow they talked her into coming to LA <laughs> yeah. and teaching at Cal Arts. Yeah. And she got a studio there called woman house uh-huh. and she brought a lot of her fresno state students mm. down to la with her and mm-hmm. then they gained even more feminist art students and the movement grew even more and then that's how the world was changed yeah yeah you know how did it manifest after they left was it still there or it just i didn't it didn't feel very feminist arty when i was there oh, okay um, <laughs> okay <laughs> I mean, I was a young baby artist, so I was just learning and feeling things through anyway. Yeah, but yeah. how I learned about it was Dr. Laura Myers, the art history, one of the art history professors there. And she was doing a lot of work in like archiving and, and researching what had happened there. Yeah. And so she presented on that in, in our class. I see. Yeah. And uh, at this point, were your parents worried about you pursuing an art degree? No, no, no. (laughs) They were very grateful, I guess, or surprised even maybe that's the word, not even grateful, but very just surprised that I was going to school at all after I had just like, you know, hated Catholic school and quit everything to work at Macy's (laughs) and like, hey, she wants to go to school. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, from there, because I know after you went to Fresno, Cal State, you ended up getting a master's of public practice at Otis. How did you transition to focusing on public practice? Because when I think about public practice and socially engaged art and, you know, whatever name you want to use, it's quite a leap, right? Because, you know, you, you kind of go from this sort of tactile, you could call it capitalistic model of of making a product versus doing something that is uh, aiming for a productless kind of product, right? You know, the the aesthetics of human relationships, the aesthetics of interaction, the aesthetics of community. And so how did you, you know, go to that? Yeah, a lot of it came from the core there of like, working in video and then seeing how video was a form a way of storytelling Uh and how it could you know it was an art form that took over the passage of time yeah and I had heard about Otis public practice program you know there were I just heard about there were some LA art students in Fresno County in Layton doing some kind of art project, some kind of public art project. And Mm -hmm. so that like kind of raised a flag with me, like, wait, what are these LA artists doing in Fresno, you know, making art, what's going on here? Yeah. 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 And so I went to go check it out and I met Cello Montoya, the program coordinator. I met Suzanne Lacey, the program director and learned that they're both from the central Valley Mm -hmm. and was like, wait, (laughs) I had never met anybody who had like left the Valley to make art or be 
you know, artists uh-huh. and then was like doing work in the valley, you know, come back. Right, right. Yeah. And so I thought it was strange and it was like, okay, like, you know, what can you do with art? Like, I want to do more. I didn't necessarily want to join them, uh-huh. you know, but I was just kind of like curious about it. Yeah. So I started looking into art programs and I saw that there is a similar program in the Bay Area at CCA. Uh-huh. And I went up there and I met Ted Purvis. And he was incredibly like warm and hospitable and Mm -hmm. talked to me a lot about my practice and what I was doing in the Valley. Um, And then I went down to LA and I visited Suzanne there and I visited that program. Ultimately, I chose to go to Otis. I liked their Central Valley ties, but also mostly because my grandpa was in LA and, you know, I knew Um, that he didn't have much longer to go. And so it was like, well, I can go to grad school and I can be with my family and reconnect here. Yeah. And I guess before you went to Otis, were you also doing a lot of community service or community building organizing? Yeah. It's interesting the ways that art will take you. So as I started taking that video art class and, you know, made a short film that played at the Fresno Film Festival. And then suddenly I just met people in the art community in Fresno. And it really got me thinking about like, what does it mean to be an artist in Fresno Mm. and an artist in the Central Valley? Like, how Mm. do you live your life? How do you exist? And so I got involved with Fresno Filmworks on the board there and Arte America is on the board there. I worked with them to organize festivals and mm-hmm. do community outreach because a lot of the audience that they had there and their membership was aging mm-hmm. and they wanted to kind of like freshen it up. And it was like, okay, well, I want to investigate this. Like, I want to see like, you know, how can we change this up? Yeah. And so what did you do? Well, with Fresno Filmworks, uh, I started talking with them about like the films that they were showing. You know, we started kind of showing some more films that appealed to like younger people of color or just generally that I was like, "Ooh, this is really cool. You guys, we should. Yeah, (laughs) we should show this. And then, you know, it was kind of stuff that maybe they hadn't like seen or that they had seen. And it was just kind of like just leveraging things like all of our interests. Yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of the people on the board at Fresno Filmworks were like teachers at Fresno city college and Fresno state. And they mm. knew, you know, they had tons of students yeah, that yeah, would, yeah. would be interested. Yeah. So yeah, it was like organizing the film festival and doing outreach. It was the early days of social media. So I helped them start up their social media, their Instagrams and yeah. their Facebooks and yeah. doing like Facebook events and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then you went to Otis and yeah. How was that? What uh, skills did you learn there? Oh man. I mean, it was just a culture shock to be in LA coming out of Fresno. <laughs> just oh, You didn't really go to LA that much before? No. I mean, uh. I had family in like San Gabriel mm-hmm. and, you know, Orange County mm-hmm. and San Bernardino Riverside, but like LA, LA, maybe yeah. like I went to my uncle's once or twice. I didn't yeah. spend a lot of time there, especially the West side where Otis is. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's quite far. Yeah. It was a huge shock, <laughs> a huge contrast. What was the thing that shocked you the most? Oh my gosh. What shocked me the most? Well, I had found a room to rent in Westchester uh-huh. and there was no trash and no graffiti and people would roll their garbage cans out to the driveway and they'd be wearing <laughs> ties and <laughs> dress shoes. <laughs> it was so strange. Lots of unnecessary water sprinklers for the green grass. Yeah, it was like a weird Tim Burton movie or yeah. something. <laughs> 
you know, so you went to Otis, you did some social practice, and then afterwards, what did you end up doing? Or like, I guess what I'm curious about, so you wanted to get a public practice uh, master's at Otis. What was your idea for getting that specific kind of degree? And what did you want to do with it after? it? This is good. And I realized I didn't really answer your previous question. That's all right. But, um, coming to Otis, I didn't totally have a full grasp of what public practice was, which I also learned that a lot of my cohort also didn't necessarily have a total idea really? of what public practice uh-huh. was. Okay. It was 2010. And from what I understand, it was still a little bit early in the usage of the term. And there were just a lot of people who were like, I don't know what public practice is. There's still people who don't know and are learning. But it's amazing that you, so many people would want to get a degree in it when they don't really know what it is. It is. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting and amazing too. And just to kind of see like, I don't know what the trajectories are of the folks who did get their degrees in public practices, practice, like a lot of them went right right into teaching or administrating, you know, just because we got bills to pay and Mm -hmm. yeah loans to pay off and things like that. And so it's, it's kind of hard to figure out your way. Yeah. Okay. So what I was thinking about is your question about like, why would so many people want to be in a public practice program when they don't know what it is? (laughs) Why would you do that to yourself? (laughs) Yeah. Well, also because like Otis isn't cheap, right? No, it's not. It's not cheap. I can speak from my perspective, from my grasp of public practice was I understood that I was doing community work and that I was interested in engagement and I was interested in ways that I could use art for engagement Mm -hmm. and that I had kind of been veering into that territory anyway with my work in Fresno. And so I saw the program as a way of building on that skill set. Yeah. And then so when you got there and then you finished, what did you do after you graduated? After I graduated? Well, first I like collapsed for a minute. Okay. (laughs) Took a breather. Yeah. It was like, what just happened? (laughs) Was it a really intense program? I mean, yeah, it was, it was very intense and it wasn't just the program. It was just that like, I had gone through this major upheaval in my life where I had spent like my entire life in the central Valley and suddenly I was living in LA. Hollywood. Yeah. It was just like, whoa, 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 is this real? What's going on here? You know, in addition to that, like, uh, you know, the relationship I had been in ended, Mm -hmm. you know, and then my grandfather passed away Mm -hmm. and it was just like, I just, needed to figure out like yeah. resituate myself yeah and then she moved back to fresno that was what i had wanted to do uh-huh but also you know when you move from one place to another you learn you learn about yourself and mm-hmm. you grow hopefully you know you're learning and growing and so i was like i don't think i'm ready to go back yet like i feel like i want to explore things more yeah and i still wanted to be connecting with like learning about my family mm-hmm so I guess not only was your grandfather living in L.A., but you also had other family members in L.A.? Yeah, like I have 
like an aunt in Azusa. I have another aunt in Fullerton. Mm, and, you know, my yeah. uncle has been bouncing around between like LA, Pasadena, Riverside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm curious about your relationship to yoga. You did a lot of these like really interesting yoga sessions and how, how you see that in relation to say a normal yoga session, right? And how did that sort of come about? Okay, so with the yoga, because I found myself in West LA yeah. and, you know, when I had come out there, I had always done yoga at home, Yeah. but I thought I would try yoga like at a yoga studio, uh-huh. but I was in West LA. And I showed up and it was like very white upper class. All wearing Lululemon and (laughs) fake breasts and plastic surgery. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And I just did not see myself fitting in there. (laughs) And so I just kind of got to asking like, what is this space? And, you know, what are the, you know, what is the intentions of yoga anyway in the first place? You know, like when you're looking at it and it's the spiritual practice. Yeah. And you're moving through these motions of life and death as the practice goes. And it's very much rooted to the land where the practice is centered and, you know, the animals and the spirituality of the land. And so I was like, okay, I want to do yoga here where I am in L.A., And I want to also feel like my sense of rootedness because I feel so displaced. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking of like, what if I mix Fresno into yoga and I made Fresno yoga? So that was something that I collaborated with Rebecca Plevin, who is, she's a good friend of mine and she's been a reporter in Fresno, a journalist in Fresno and in LA and Palm Springs. And now she's working again in Fresno and she's a certified yoga teacher. And so like me, just as the person practicing, I don't necessarily, I don't have like the certification (laughs) that she does. But, you know, just talking with her about like, okay, how do I make this flow? Like, how can we make this into something where we're like talking, like telling a narrative or maybe exploring a concept through our movements? So were these like free yoga classes and where are the exact locations that you're picking in Fresno? We only did them a few times up in Fresno. We didn't do any Fresno yoga in LA. I don't feel like it'll make sense anywhere outside of there. Right. Yeah. But we did... A couple, there was an art guided bus tour that Nikiko Masumoto, who is a social practice artist as well um, in the Central Valley. She's amazing. You should talk to her. Um, (laughs) We joined her and we actually did them at a public rest stop in Tipton which is like off the highway 99 in the central Valley. Uh And so we kind of just invited people who were at the rest stop, like, Hey, join us, stretch, do roadside stretch, do some yoga, Mm -hmm. you know, but in the meantime, we're like, here's a downward bulldog and you know, here's the high speed rail. And, you know, just kind of talking about the Valley as they're like passing through the Valley. Yeah. But this particular piece and project, as I understand, also expanded beyond Fresno, right? Because I think at least when I was looking through your work, you have, you also called it art moves and you did yoga and place spaces like LACMA by like Chris Burden's Metropolis. Yeah. And so you see those as separate projects? Yeah, those are separate. They're connected They're but they're separate projects for sure. So with LACMA and art moves, 
we were working with Cello Montoya, who's doing the programming, yeah. public programming there. Yeah. And um, she understood the concepts that we were talking about there with talking about like place and, yeah. you know, how our bodies are tied to these works and learning and yeah. embodiment and the membership. What were you talking about with the Chris Burden piece with Metropolis that was working with um, Edward Escarcega? who was the membership coordinator there right at the time. And they asked us to come into the gallery and create a yoga program that was based on the work in those galleries. There's Richard Serra, Chris Burden, and gosh, who's the other one? I forget. I can't remember. Anyway, so it's, it's all the works in the BCAM gallery, which is like that bottom floor there. Sure, sure. And yeah. all of those works are about Los Angeles and mm-hmm. LA traffic. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of observed the way that like there's these big windows that are facing Wilshire with traffic going by. And yeah. that's mirroring the artwork on the wall, which is like these red and white neon lights that are mirroring the traffic going by. And uh-huh. then you have Chris Burden's Metropolis zipping around with these little race cars. And so we got to kind of talking about like how we're affected, how our bodies are affected by traffic and how our bodies are affected Mm. by the ways that we move in LA. Yeah. Yeah. And we created a yoga program around that. It was pretty amazing. And we got to do that only once. The yoga thing at Laughlin was going to be occasionally like seasonal throughout the year, but the pandemic came along and Mm, health professions would not allow us to do yoga in an indoor space. So we moved it over to a Zoom format. Okay. And so who are the audiences? Were you targeting like museum people or like, did you have another audience that you were trying to bring into this space that wouldn't normally be there? In person, we did two different sessions. So the one that I just described with Edward was part of the membership program. And so that was LACMA members, but we also did a series. We did a few different yoga sessions at the Charles White Gallery, LACMA's branch in MacArthur Park. Okay. It went along with the Rufino Tamayo exhibit. And so there's an elementary school there uh, right by the campus. And so there were students from the school who came, parents, teachers. I think they did a little outreach to the neighborhood. I'm not exactly sure, but there was a lot of people there. (laughs) Yeah. So, but that one was open to the public. Right, right. Um, But the other one was kind of like members only, but it was still a lot of members that showed up. And that was interesting. I'd never seen, I'd never been in a room with all LACMA members either. So I was really curious, like, what do LACMA members look like? And what do they look like? (laughs) I mean, they definitely shop at Trader Joe's probably. (laughs) Don't you mean Whole Foods? Whole Foods, Whole Foods, for (laughs) sure. For sure, they're at Whole Foods. I mean, Trader Joe's is like up there for me. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. No, (laughs) Where I'm coming from. Um, <laughs> you got to step it up when you're in Hollywood. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so it was a little more mixed than I thought it would be. Yeah. So I was surprised uh-huh. by that. I, I was like expecting like just like mostly middle class white people, but it was like middle class, lots of people. <laughs> hipsters, middle class hipsters. They weren't necessarily hipsters. They were yoga people, actually. There were oh, like, okay. like serious yoga people that showed up like, what are you guys doing? We're here to check this out. Were you the uh, yoga instructor? I was like narrating like oh, the okay. stories. Oh, okay. the new- and Rebecca was like instructing the yoga. Uh, okay. Okay. And so what was the reception? What did these people think? People were really warm about it. Okay. They 
like they came up afterward and they were just like, thank you for doing this. Mm -hmm. Cause we had told them like, this isn't something that's going to challenge your body and your moves. Or you're not going to like get sweaty here, but this is going to challenge the way that you think about your yoga practice yeah, um, yeah, and also the way that you experience the art here. And they were like, there were some neurons connecting while they yeah. were doing it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the interesting thing about the project, I try to tell my students this as well, sort of like, you know, what pre-existing social relation or network can you co-opt so you don't have to like create an entirely new one right mm-hmm. you know right because i do teach like a social practice class and it's like when my students try to do something they're like they want to construct the entire framework and then obviously when uh, an audience comes in they don't really know what's going on and if you don't take that pre-existing structure you have to like teach the audience everything but that doesn't really work out for most of the time right you kind of need people to understand what's going on and then start realizing that something's a little off but they don't know but they know at least the rules right they know the system that you're supposed to function under yeah and they're already trusting whatever the rules and the system is and you're just kind of uh navigating your way through it and maybe twisting things around when they get there yeah 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 and then another thing that was sort of interesting is sort of like how you kind of deal with other types of you know other ways of talking about i guess uh, social relationships and you know one of the pieces that I liked is the experimental quesadilla lab uh, and I was curious you know how can you talk a little bit about that and you know where the project sort of started and came from again that came out of my culture shock of moving from Fresno to LA okay the experimental quesadilla lab in the way that you're shocked because of how LA presents quesadilla or what well i was sitting there in grad school at our studio in santa monica and there's this table full of snacks like grapes and crackers and there's this weird cheese like right there in the middle and i had never seen it before and it looked really strange to me because i had a crust on it and it was kind of smelly (laughs) and it was brie Okay. All right. Sure. And I was like, what is this? Why do we have this here? Like, what, yeah, you know, how do you yeah. eat it? Yeah. Yeah. Not that we don't have Brie in Fresno, but my experience, my life there, I did not encounter it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I came to art school and suddenly Brie was relevant and something in my life. <laughs> in all the art openings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every art so- opening has Brie. <laughs> Yes. Like I had only eaten like the same two or three cheeses my whole life. (laughs) And so I was like, well, I'm kind of curious. And so I I went to Trader Joe's one day. We have Trader Joe's in Fresno. I just never went, you know, I I didn't know it was a little bit more affordable. And so I went to Trader Joe's one day and I was just kind of feeling wild. And I bought some cheese I had never eaten before. (laughs) <laughs> I like how you're feeling wild by buying cheese and not the wine there. <laughs> I do. I know. Yeah. So I went yeah. straight for the cheese. Yeah. And so Brie was kind of my gateway cheese. Okay. <laughs> so now you love cheese. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I took it home and then I had this weird cheese in my fridge and I was like, what do you do with it? And like the only thing I knew to do was to make a quesadilla. Uh huh. And so. <laughs> so you made a, a brie quesadilla? It was like a blueberry goat cheese. I think that was what I bought because it was <laughs> okay. just like so weird looking to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I like made it in a corn tortilla and I took it to class with me. And then I was like, oh my God, this is delicious. 
And I was like, what did I just do here? And I just kind of got to thinking about like, okay, like if I told anybody back home what I just did, <laughs> like I think people would kind of get mad at me. They'd be like, oh my God, that's it's so blasphemous, white. blasphemous. <laughs> yeah. yeah just, so yeah, I was just like, wait, okay. So there's so much like cultural things happening here with mm-hmm. like, you know, why are you eating this weird cheese? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. and so I started looking at quesadillas as this way of kind of a portal, kind of a metaphor. What kind of foods do we have around us? Mm-hmm. What foods do we choose to eat? Do we, you know, venture outside of it ever? Yeah. And yeah. then on top of that, um, I had mentioned a little bit earlier that I had like had surgery for endometriosis uh-huh. like many years ago. And so I was still dealing like with those health issues and trying to adjust it. And so part of having endometriosis is you kind of have to like watch what you eat because mm. it affects the, your pain levels and your body and okay. your energy. You know, not everybody can eat dairy not everybody can eat gluten but you still like want a quesadilla yeah so that's where the experimental quesadilla lab comes into play because now it's this space where i'm using foods that are from whatever nearby area that the lab is popping up and i'm creating this space to kind of experiment with our variables there like you know, what are your restrictions around food? And Mm. then what can you make from the food that you have available with you? Mm. So take me through the process of that. So like you go to a space or a location, right? And then what you go grocery shopping at the nearest grocery store and then this pop-up happens. Is that kind of what happens? Yeah. So I'll look at the site where the lab is popping up. Like, for example, I did one at City Hall as part of the current LA biennial. Okay. And so I was like, okay, what's around City Hall? There's like Grand Central Market. The LA biennial is part of Hammer, right? Uh, I believe that's DCA. Oh, 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 yeah. Current LA. Oh, because you're thinking of the Made in LA. Yeah, yeah, Made in LA. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. This is current LA. And so the last theme for it was food. Okay. Okay. And so there was Food Day LA. And so I was kind of part of their adjacent events. Okay. Yeah. And so I kind of like got snuck in there somehow. Yeah. Take advantage of those sneak in moments. Yeah. It was uh, LA Food Policy Council invited me. They're like, you should be in this. super grateful. So I was looking at what's around there Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's like supermarkets in little Tokyo, Mm -hmm. there's grand central market. There's like a smart and final, Mm -hmm. you know, whole foods, of course. Yeah. And so considering what the budget was for that event, I went through and I bought like some nice cheeses over at grand central. And then I went to the markets in little Tokyo Mm -hmm. and smart and final. And I was able to get like a range of foods and um, have those presented for people to experiment with. To make a quesadilla. Mm -hmm. And what did people say? Um, It's always interesting doing these because they change up every time. All right. And so because we were in downtown LA at City Hall and there's just so many people passing through, you know, from all these different walks of life. Right. First of all, they were like, wait, you guys are making quesadillas and they're free. So people started lining up, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so as they're lining up, I'm talking to them and I'm like, all right, look, like I am not a restaurant. I'm here as an artist. And, Uh um, you know, this is an experimental space. And so some people were really down to experiment and other people were like, yeah, sure. I'll experiment, you know? Yeah. But it was just kind of like, this is part of like the social practice art, you know, engagement. And so, you know, I have like a lab slip, And I I have people just kind of like before you even like 
decide what's going in your quesadilla, like, you know, I want you to think about like, you know, what are your dietary restrictions? What are your ethics around food? Anyway, like, what are your restrictions around food? And then I give them kind of a challenge, like, uh-huh. you know, I'll ask them a question, you know, just to kind of like guide the intention of them in their experiment. Uh-huh. I'll say something like, you know, make a quesadilla that like reflects your personality or like make the quesadilla of your dreams or something like that. And then with that, they have to consider their dietary restrictions. Like I'm going to make the quesadilla of my dreams, but I can't eat dairy, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And then they have to look at what's available there and then they make the quesadilla. And then I ask them to share it with somebody, mm. you know, so that you can kind of like learn about each other. I see. I see. So I guess what would be a replacement for the cheese if you can't eat uh, dairy that you would offer them? So some people can't eat cow's milk, but they can eat sheep uh, okay. or goat's milk. I see. Some people will eat cheeses that are made from cashews. Yeah. 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 There's a lot mm-hmm. of different kinds of cheeses out there and so you would actually offer all these different cheeses the yeah. labs okay yeah so you know i guess another one of your projects that i'm interested in is your adornamented projects you know i guess i'm curious about that because they're like as i understand it they're like these products that you then paint over then resell right and then they all each one of these products has a cultural significance to you or for you or that you're interested in could you talk about you know how you choose some of the products for this particular project and how does it sort of expand on you know how you see your social practice or the way that your art kind of speaks to social relationships adornamented adornamented <laughs> it's it, it, i mean it's a mush of adorned and ornamented but yeah but it, it feels like a real word <laughs> awesome adornamented when i had finished at otis and i like collapsed for a second there one of my colleagues carmen uriarte kind of came in and was like hey you should try out this like bottle painting thing that i do at the department stores okay and i was like Uh, you're like back back at macy's yeah yeah i was like i'm familiar with this i was kind of drawn (laughs) in by the idea of actually like sitting in the department store and painting and not actually like folding anything or hanging up underwear yeah so so it kind of felt like a bit of a victory return and so i i wanted to just kind of give it a shot and so I would show up at like Nordstrom or Bloomingdale's or Saks or whatever, and they would have these like expensive fragrance bottles for me to adorn and paint on as like live painting event for some of the vendors. And it wasn't to my taste. Okay. And I was really curious about like why you would do this and who would do it. But I was still kind of, you know, the artist in me was like, let's see what's going on here. Yeah. Um, and especially to just revisit the retail space again, you know, after all this time. So, you know, I, I just saw like, okay, people like this, but it's not necessarily accessible because you have to buy like a $150 bottle of fragrance <laughs> and not everybody's really interested in that. Yeah. And so <laughs> I started painting on like champagne bottles for celebrations because people like that. Somebody asked me if I could paint on a bottle of like Don Julio 1948. And so I started doing that. And then I was like, well, you know, what's a more like common object that we can use? And I started just thinking about how these objects are meant by painting on them. It like 
commemorates some kind of event, elevates it and makes it like a little more special in its usage. When you use it, it feels a little more ritualistic. And it was like, oh, hot sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> this is what we have. And that's that's like something that you use it and you don't think about it a lot of times. Or that's my experience of it. It's just kind of like, let me just dump this stuff on my food because it doesn't yeah, yeah. You know, taste right without it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, once you have hot sauce, you can't go back. <laughs> you can't. It's so addictive. But it's it's a ritual. Yeah. And so I was like, well, if I paint on this, then it kind of becomes like maybe something that you can bring out when you have guests over for dinner, or maybe yeah. it's like a gift that you give somebody for their birthday, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe it just kind of like gives you a little moment of joy by like using your special bottle of hot sauce. The ideas of like what we do in private at home and that isn't necessarily like a direct public engagement, but that we can have some kind of like moment of pleasure, like, you know, in, in our food or whatever it is, yeah. was what like came to me with my, as part of my practice in that. Yeah. And do the companies get bought? Do they know about this? Like, I'm just like, I'm just thinking, would they allow you to sell this or they just don't know about it? Tag them. <laughs> I like, I, I right away, I started tagging them. Cholula came back and they were very Cholula. They were like, what a nice reuse of our bottles. <laughs> <laughs> That's it? Yeah. They were just like, hmm. <laughs> And then Tapatio, they love it. (laughs) That's good. That's good. And they have like a great sense of humor about it. They appreciate it. Mm. And so they've been really nice and they'll like repost my work. And so, yeah, most recently for Valentine's Day, um, we did a giveaway of like a gift box that I had made. Uh huh. And they even did like a TikTok of the box. An unwrapping of it? Well, we were doing like a photo shoot of it. And so they were just kind of like featuring it as the TikTok. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy these stories, right? Because I think that's sort of what you were talking about. At least when you're making videos, right? You're interested in the storytelling, right? And the the way that these different, you know, objects have their own stories, the way that these different uh, food items, right? The quesadilla, hot sauce. And, you know, I also noticed that this idea of the storytelling continues to have a huge role. Like I I was looking at um, the, you have a piece called The Invasions of the Fresnans, right? And, And how you're inviting people to kind of tell stories in, you know, I guess just you, as I understand, you're just telling stories. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, how else have you kind of embraced this idea of storytelling? And then I guess for you, what is so important about storytelling? Yeah, I love this question. Thank you. It's the memory that comes with it. Mm-hmm. There's the way that we repeat the story back and that we're remembering it and how we want other people to remember the story. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of the way that the story lives on where maybe you take part of that story with you in a certain way. There's there's an element of it that you kind of always remember or that might shift a decision that you make or a certain way that you live. My grandparents would always tell me stories like I grew uh-huh. up with my grandma in the house and she had such a like traumatic life, like starting from her childhood and even as a child, she would tell me these, these stories. stories. Yeah. It really helped me to understand her as a person, like even as a child, just to kind of like see where she was coming from and what she had been there. Because, you know, I, I was meeting her at this, you know, at the age of 70, 
you know, and, and she's telling me all of the things that had come before I was even around and all the things that she had been through. Mm -hmm. And so it really got me to like see her humanity and pain of things that she had gone through. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of thought that that's very, very important for us to do. Right. Is mm -hmm. just kind of give a little backstory to us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I always think of stories as like usually the only thing that, you know, people remember right out of a situation whether for better or for worse you know and, and these stories can obviously change but you know we think about all these complicated lives and complicated situations that happen and all that's left usually is the story right yeah i mean look at fairy tales mm -hmm, yeah right like those are hundreds and hundreds of years old stories you know mm -hmm. and and you know all these mythologies that we have you know and the ways that they take on new form over time in media like you know suddenly they're a cartoon and then it's an action figure mm -hmm. and then it's a halloween costume and you know you're still like constantly telling these stories in different mediums Right, right. And then I know you also did this with, yeah, like a Zoom sort of discussion lecture, kind of Chicana, where you're also talking about stories, right? Storytelling in relation to culture, identity and memory. And, you know, I saw that also like the project was about the storytelling aspect of one's history. Yeah, with kind of Chicana, it's talking about just how it's this group of people who are mainly like Mexican-American, you know, maybe they identify as Chicano or Chicana or Chicanx. Yeah. But they're like maybe third or more generation in. And yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of times you don't hear those stories about being multiple generations in and there's kind of the stereotype of just like oh you don't speak spanish and you hate your culture and you're so whitewashed and blah 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 and it was like well what if we all kind of come together start telling our stories yeah is there a word for a whitewashed chicana chicana x because one of my pieces you know i talk about like bananas and twinkies right yellow on the outside white on the inside and then in my research like i noticed that a lot of other cultures also have similar fruit or object names for this, right? So there's like the apple, an Oreo or something like that. And I didn't know if there's an equivalence in Chicana, Chicana X culture. Like a pocha, a pocha is yeah. literally a rotten fruit. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's even worse. It is. <laughs> yeah. That's funny that the fruit thing still yeah. carries on there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, at the beginning you were talking about how, you know, you're quite busy. A lot of things are coming together. You also, you've been traveling back and forth. You have a bunch of things picking up in Fresno. So, you know, as we're kind of winding down, could you talk a little bit about what you're currently working on, what you have on the horizon? I know you quickly talked about you have a new quesadilla experimental lab, but what are the other projects that you're working on? Well, I know... Pretty soon, there's a new issue of Alta Journal coming out. Alta okay. is kind of like the West Coast answer to the Atlantic. Okay. And it's based out of San Francisco. Okay. And they do a lot of writing about like uh, the arts and literary in yeah. California and um, mm -hmm. the West. And so I'm actually having my first full-length essay published in oh. Alta. Okay. Congrats. Yeah, like. Like I'm, I'm starting to tell some stories and, and write. Is this a fictional or nonfiction story? Uh, this is nonfiction. It's like okay. a nonfictional essay. Okay. And so I talk about kind of the conversation that's going on between the work that I'm making and the work that the poets in some, like a few poets in Fresno are making and okay. how our work is in conversation with each other. 
Uh-huh. And how there's like a through line of ideas. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I'm excited about that because I really enjoy writing. I didn't know how much that I would like it, but I want to do it more. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a hard time writing. <laughs> I can do it. I just procrastinate a lot and I don't enjoy the process, but yeah. <laughs> I think like with what I was writing about, it came out so like naturally, naturally for yeah. me where yeah. like I had so many thoughts on it and it was yeah. like, oh, if I can keep writing about these kind of things, like that would be amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you got, you got an essay coming out in Alta and then what were some of the projects that you're doing in Fresno that were picking up? Oh, so in Fresno, it's kind of involves storytelling again. Uh-huh. There's uh-huh. a new campus in West Fresno that State Center Community College District is building. It's uh, the West Fresno branch of Fresno City College. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty sizable. And you know, every college campus has a fountain, right? Mm-hmm. So I was selected to design the artwork that goes around that fountain. Okay. And yeah, and that's like a super special honor. And they have asked that the work focus on the history and culture of West Fresno. Okay. So there's a lot of stories in West Fresno that haven't necessarily like had maybe a public front facing way to kind of be present in the community. Right. And so I'm going to go through a few months of community input and outreach and work with folks in West Fresno to talk about like, you know, what are some of the histories that should be included here? What are some landscapes, you know, some folks and then um, get that artwork designed. It'll be like a series of vignettes, portraiture, uh, landscape painted on tile Uh that I'm going to do. And so I'm pretty excited about that. I also work with a collective called Granula Productions uh-huh. up in Fresno. And that is Elena Harvey Collins, who's a curator and director at Art Space Gallery in Fresno. And Carissa Garcia, who is a Chicana artist, muralist, historian, and arts culture worker. And we received a grant through California Arts Council to create an online digital community archive. Oh, yeah public art in Fresno. Yeah. So there's a lot of art that's made in Fresno and a lot of it is tied to Chicano muralism and people's connections with the land. Yeah. And a lot of stories that haven't been archived or told. So we're going to do some public engagement work there. Nice. Okay. Is this like a multi-month or year kind of project? I mean, this is the first phase of like a year's long project. So it will work in multi-months for this first phase we'd like to eventually develop it into an exhibition and then a book about muralism in fresno Mm, i see but not just muralism but public art in Fresno. yeah right right i think that'd be cool having a publication about that you know another form of storytelling and kind of preserving and archiving these stories Mm -hmm. so yeah uh is there anything else that i missed that you want to talk about that you want to plug? Do you want to plug your Instagram, social media? Okay. <laughs> uh, so you can find me on Instagram. I am not Teresa, N-O-T-T-E-R-E-S-A. Twitter, same thing, not Teresa. Is this a pun for like not Teresa or something or or not Teresa or telling people how to pronounce your name? Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. It oh, started okay. up as like me thinking about how... I couldn't eat certain foods or I Uh 
couldn't like drink alcohol at the time and you know just things like like that and it was like excluding myself so it was like uh, not Teresa uh, okay. like not the one not uh, Teresa uh, I see I see <laughs> and your website is TeresaFloresStudio.com cool well again thanks so much for chatting with me and uh, I'm excited to release this episode I hope you have a wonderful Friday evening and yeah stay stay safe and all that jazz i really appreciate getting to tell all these stories so yeah thank you yeah <laughs> thanks for telling the stories I, I also love listening to the stories so awesome all right well take care Teresa. all right thank you bye bye seeing color is recorded edited and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.